Hello, and welcome to The IDI, a podcast by and for market access professionals. I'm your host, Ira Apfel. Each episode, we conduct in-depth interviews to get payer insights that help you optimize your value strategy and commercialization and give people access to the health care they deserve. The IDI is presented by Valuate Health Consultancy. Follow Valuate on LinkedIn or visit us at valuatehealth.com to learn more. The Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy, or AMCP, recently held their annual summit, and it's a major event in the world of pharma and market access. Lots of news, lots of trends, and lots of takeaways. Two of my colleagues were fortunate enough to attend. Kimberly Tsai is a consultant with Valuate. She holds a PharmD and a Master's in Public Health from Rutgers University. Christine Castiglione holds a Master's in Public Health from the University of Miami in Florida. She is a Senior Strategy Analyst with Valuate. Kimberly and Christine learned a ton at the AMCP event, and they are here to tell you all about it over the course of the next two episodes. In part one, Kimberly and Christine will give their high-level takeaways from the event and what market access professionals should learn from it. Part two digs deeper into some of the regulatory and legislative news that came out of AMCP Summit. So without further ado, let's go to part one. So Kimberly and Christine, welcome to the podcast. I guess the first question I have is, um, When's the last time either of you went to a, an in-person uh, conference? Because I'm wondering, this might have been your first time back in quite a long time. I can start with that. Um, I actually had attended AMCP Nexus last fall, October of 2021 in Colorado. But I have to say that going to these conferences, it really was a refreshing time. And it went by in such a blur, but that's actually a good thing. Um, it was, like I said refreshing, energizing. It's so great to see so many people passionate about managed care in one space. And I think pre-pandemic, we almost used to have to drag our feet to go to a conference, but now it feels like conferences are the place to be, to congregate, because it, it could be the one opportunity every few months for colleagues to meet in person. So Kimberly, you were really excited, really energized. How about you, Christine? Was this your first time in, in a while at a conference? What was it like for you? Yes, absolutely. I echo everything that Kimberly said. But I would say, honestly, it was almost like people kind of forgot, you know, taking these in-person engagements for granted, right? So uh, there's like this new, I would call it like almost like a rebirth of excitement for being together in person because you can just get so much more done and meet with so many other people. And I mean, I think there's definitely an appreciation for the fact that um, for those where it may be tougher to travel and and make that in-person trip, that there are opportunities to kind of be engaged virtually as well. So this hybrid environment has been giving us um, opportunities for people to really engage, um, you know, whether it's from afar or in in person and kind of being able able to do both has been uh, something that's new for everybody. So... So with that in mind, let's let's take take it at the top and take it from the thirty thousand foot perspective. Uh, I'll start with you, Kimberly, and then Christine. You can chime in. So, w- based on your time at AMCP, uh, what what's in, what's out, what's what's the big kind of takeaways you have, and then we will dive in a little bit later, uh, kind of uh, you know, uh, dive in a little bit deeper on some of these topics. But what's the big takeaways you you took, Kimberly? Sure. So naturally, there's still a lot of talk about COVID-19, the the COVID-19 pandemic and the ripple effect from that. 
I've said it before, but I'll say it again. The pandemic really is an initiator and a disruptor of healthcare trends. And I'll give an example. So last year, I think many people were talking about telehealth being the next big thing. But due to other impacts from the pandemic, it turns out that in the last year, telehealth has actually slowed down. Um, And there was a lot of talk and focus about things coming up on the policy and regulatory horizon. A lot of really exciting things that we're going to be talking about later, like the Pi Act and efforts for drug price reform, efforts for PBM report, they kept on coming up. Um, And Medicaid best price, of course, that was really the focal point of a lot of separate sessions. There's also the interest in how to manage reimbursement for cell and gene therapies. That was a huge theme at ANCP this year, as I'm sure it will be for future conferences. And it was also a trend at AMCP Nexus last year as well. Other than that, we also have some exciting innovations happening on the prescription digital therapeutic side, which Christine will be talking to later. And there is a huge effort in focusing on how to close gaps in health equity that have become so much more prominent during the pandemic. Um, and just one more trend I can think of is biosimilars. And we kept on saying for years and years now that biosimilars are coming and they haven't really made it in a huge impact yet, but it seems that 2023 is the year that biosimilars might actually be having an impact on the market. Interesting, interesting. And Christine, how about you? What are, what are your big takeaways from the meeting? Sure. Well, Kimberly said it pretty well, a 3,000 foot view, but honestly, I would say just a lot of things that were exposed um, as a result of the pandemic. Like, for example, I would lead to a policy update where um, I think that's a really big area. And also, given the fact that our administration changed over during an unprecedented time, I think there's been now that, you know, uh, we've had this administration for the last almost, I guess it's been two years now, there's been time to really kind of hit the ground running with some of these legislation proposals. So I think we're actually going to start to see some things uh, change and uh, meaningful, you know, action being taken place. Um, I also think that as far as again, being exposed, like a lot of challenges, uh, disparities in healthcare, you know, our, our health system was really put to the test when we uh, were faced with this global pandemic. And I think that a lot of the challenges that our different stakeholders have been facing have, have led them to really think long and hard about what are some, uh, how, how can we make reforms? How can we try to make sure that people have equal access to care, um, whether you know telehealth was actually something that's really helped people um, get care that may not have had the opportunity to get it before because they were in you know areas that were not near a lot of the health services. Um, I think that there's just been a lot of things that have kind of, again, for lack of better terms, been uncovered as a result of this. So now we're like, okay, in the phase of, well, we've identified the following problems and challenges. How can we really solve for them together? So Kimberly, you mentioned that you think that 2023 might finally be the year that biosimilars take off. Why do you say that? Why is 2023 looking so promising? 
Sure. And I've been reporting and following biosimilars for four or five years now. And I remember the first time I reported out, it was, I was saying, wait and see, wait and see, they'll be coming out soon. And that has sort of continued on and has been the theme up until now. And biosimilars have met a lot of legal and regulatory hurdles since we really first started talking about them due to a lot of regulatory gray area going on, all those patent wars, etc. And while some biosimilars have managed to squeeze through in the meantime, I think it's really, I'm saying 2022, mainly due to a full pipeline of biosimilars and also the entrance of the Humira biosimilar, which I tend to think of as the big kuna. In fact, there are actually seven Humira biosimilars that are poised to enter the market, I believe, all in 2023 as well. What does that mean then for potential price discrepancies? Sure. In in terms of the impact on future potential price discrepancies, I have to say there are still a lot of questions that are up in the air that make it difficult to accurately predict what kind of an impact these biosimilars will have. I mean, we don't know the price yet. We don't know how these manufacturers will contract. Even payers are saying they're still holding on to a wait and see approach. So so we'll see. Hopefully, I mean, we are always hoping that these biosimilars are coming out at a substantial price discount to spur on some competition and help everyone manage these costs a little bit better. But we'll see. I really do expect a lot more AMCB coverage and headlines and traction this year going into next year on biosimilars. You mentioned before uh, we got on the podcast, you were talking about how specialty pharmaceuticals are driving change in how payers approach utilization management. How are specialty drugs changing things? Sure. I think there is just a much more aggressive approach that will continue on to being more aggressive as time goes on to managing specialty drugs. There has been a lot of talk, for example, of payers moving specialty drugs from the medical benefit over to the pharmacy benefit just for tighter and easier management. We'll probably see more restrictive utilization management criteria just to make sure that just that just that the just so the payers can make sure that the patients are truly the right patients for these drugs. We can also expect to see greater side of care optimization, and that's really payers pushing patients to receive any physician administered drugs at outpatient sites, which by the way are much cheaper than getting them inpatient. That's why. And overall, it's this just means that it's important for manufacturers of these specialty products, whether it's common disease or rare disease, really, to work closely with payers to make sure that whatever policies they're creating are truly appropriate for the drug. And how about for access strategies? What's the op- upshot of all of this? Um, pharmacists should be increasingly targeted in access strategies. What does it all mean? And Christine, feel free to, I don't mean to exclude you at all or anything like that. So if you have anything to chime in and say, you, you want to take the lead on the response, go for it. Yeah, so access and the pharmacist. And I'll take just one step back. When we think of access and reimbursement, other than focusing on the payer itself, for us, it's really all been all about 
pulling through coverage to the provider, the HCP. Well, now that less patients are actually seeing their providers regularly, yet another ripple effect from the pandemic, it's time to branch out and target pharmacists, which are which are a rising stakeholder. I recall a statistics being read out at AMCP reading that patients have been seeing pharmacists 10 times more than other healthcare professionals. So for many patients to think of it from their perspective, it's easier to consult the pharmacist when picking up that prescription. So you want to make sure that the pharmacist is really providing that right consult. For that, we've actually ourselves, we've done pharmacist campaigns, we've created guidances, tear pads, a lot of things up that alley for our own clients to make sure that the pharmacists are comfortable when dispensing that prescription for the patient. Let's talk a little bit about cell and gene therapies. What's happening there? What did you hear at the uh, at the conference? And what's the impact for reimbursement strategies? Oh, so much is happening for cell and gene therapies. There, is, there are a lot in the pipeline, as we all know, but reimbursement strategies, I'll restart that, but reimbursement strategies are still very much a wild, wild west. And that's really because cell and gene therapies are so unique in that, yes, they do have a very high cost comparatively, but they could potentially have a very, very long duration of efficacy, of benefit that makes them almost like a cure. So it's really difficult to calculate the value of that through traditional means that we're used to. However, our healthcare system and the traditional payment methodologies that we have are not really cut out to handle reimbursement for a high cost, very durable therapy. So a lot of change needs to happen there. And that's where that's that has been the focal point of these sessions at AMCP when it comes to cell and gene therapies. How do we solve that question of what's the right way to finance and reimburse for them? Right now, a lot of things are decided on a case-by-case basis. Since cell and gene therapies have been slow to launch, so payers do have that time between launches to figure things out for every individual therapy. However, in the future, I think things will likely have to be more expedited and standardized. One solution many people are hoping for but are still ironing out, for example, is value-based payment arrangements. There are a lot of snags that have to be overcome. There definitely has to be a lot more collaboration between stakeholders. And by stakeholders, I mean payers, health systems, even manufacturers to come together and figure out how to overcome those challenges. And yeah, so it's a very it's a very interesting time. It definitely calls and pushes for innovation. So we're excited to see what ultimately comes out of that. You also mentioned that PBTs are flooding the market, or you, you, we talked about this a bit before the podcast. Why now, and what are the remaining challenges? Sure. And for that, I'll turn it over to Christine. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So PBTs, I would say, largely right now, and I do want to just start by saying that there are two different terms that are used often. It's PDTs, which is prescription digital therapeutics, and then DTX, which stands for digital therapeutics. And the main differentiator there is that digital therapeutics could be 
anything in the form um, of an app or some kind of software, but it is not, it doesn't necessarily need um, a prescription from a provider, whereas the prescription digital therapeutics um, have to go through the FDA approval process like other products would, and they then have to be, um, is a requirement that they are written as a script from a provider. So just wanted to make that clarification because that is something that's often confused. Um, but the PDTs particularly now, uh, they're really flooding the market. I would say mostly given the fact that there's been a huge, huge increase in investment in mental health and behavioral health, which was largely uh, driven by the pandemic. There were um, there was huge increase just in uh, mental health diagnoses in general over the last couple of years, whether it's, um, you know, substance abuse disorder, opioid use disorder, things like that. So historically, the behavioral health space has also had the largest um, uptake and were sort of the industry leaders as far as the digital health world um, in the first place. So even from a telehealth perspective, like that's where we saw the largest um, uptake in telehealth services before the pandemic. It was all in uh, mental health um, and behavioral health type services. So PDTs largely have been leaving their footprint in the mental health space um, where there's definitely going to be expansion into other therapeutic areas such as, um, you know, other cognitive disorders in the CNS space. So Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, epilepsy. There's been other, you know, research done in the cardiometabolic space, even um, from the diabetes perspective as well. So we're going to see a large uh, growth in other areas, but it's really been heavily concentrated in mental health um, and behavioral health. But as far as what the remaining challenges are, there's been a lot of confusion around how do we treat this these prescription digital therapeutics? Are they drugs? Are they devices? Um, you know, is it prescription versus non-prescription? So there's been all those initial questions, and that's sort of led to further confusion around you know, is this going to be covered as part of the medical benefit or the pharmacy benefit? What's the role in therapy? Is it supplementary to medication-assisted therapy? Or is it something that could be used in place of that? And, um, you know, we're seeing largely that it's going to be uh, complementary and supplemental. It's not supposed to be used in place of medication therapy in different therapeutic areas. But again, you know, it's it's very individualized and very, um, it's it's, the PDT is one of their biggest strong suits is that it, it, it can very much be customized um, in the treatment plan, which is a big positive of the therapeutic overall. But again, there's definitely challenges as far as how do these things get covered? What's the process for reviewing them? Is it traditionally, you know, from the pharmacy and therapeutics committee? Is it going to be through, um, you know, technology health tech committees is going to have to go through that kind of assessment so there aren't there aren't a lot of policy in place yet there has been legislation that has been proposed and that would provide further clarity around how this needs to be covered whether it's pharmaceutical or medical benefit um, what does the reimbursement pathways look like and then um, you know even just additional regulatory considerations that's that's all coming uh, very soon and they've actually, even had some supporters for the latest bill that was just passed. Um, so very exciting. They actually now have some uh, HICS-PICS code. So there's, there's strides being made, but there's still a lot of confusion around 
how we should kind of address this as an overall category since it's it's kind of its own thing. It's unprecedented. That's it for this episode of the IDI. Thanks again to my guests, Kimberly Tsai and Christine Castiglione. Be sure to follow them on LinkedIn. And be sure to follow the IDI on Apple and Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Valuate on LinkedIn or visit us on the web at valuatehealth.com to learn more. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your week.